in the last week of a series that we've been doing. It's called The Legend of Joe Jacobson. Next week, we're going to start a new series. It's going to be called The Gospel in the Last Place that you would expect to find it. That's what we're going to be doing next week. But today, we wrap up the series, The Legend of Joe Jacobson, that we've been in throughout the summer. If you have a Bible, turn with me in it to Genesis chapter 50. Genesis chapter 50, and I'll meet you there in just a moment. I think you would agree, I think most of you would agree, that on the one hand, there is this deep longing in the human heart for peace and reconciliation between people all over the planet. I think we all long for that. And yet, on the other hand, there is a stunning inability for human beings to live at peace with one another. Uh, Despite all of the bumper stickers that uh, tell us to visualize world peace, and despite the bumper stickers that say coexist, and despite the bumper stickers that challenge us to end all wars, we just as a human race, cannot make that happen. And I think the last few weeks in the world have underscored that very reality. Would you agree? 295 innocent civilians shot down out of the sky over eastern Ukraine. Hamas and Israel in another of what seems to be an incessant battle over the Palestinian question and really over Israel's right to a national existence. And then, of course, there is in Iraq, ISIS that is marching through Iraq and murdering innocent people at will. And I think that we probably would like to hide ourselves behind the idea that all of that is just the foolishness of geopolitics. But the reality is, is that when you get down to the relational world in which most of us live, we still, we can't even make peace happen in our small relational worlds, can we? The divorce rate in America is not declining at any significant rate, at least. How many workplaces have you been a part of that were ruined as a result of interpersonal conflict? Racism still exists all over the world. Bigotry and misogyny, that exists in homes and in workplaces. In short, living in peace with other people, uh, as much as we long for it, seems impossible. And yet... In the midst of what seems humanly impossible and in a part of the world in which peace seems impossible, the Bible gives us this story of a terribly dysfunctional Middle Eastern family in which hatred and greed and selfishness and secrets have divided the family for years and yet something happens at the end of the story that I don't think anybody would have seen coming at the beginning of the story. What I want to do is let's pick up the reading at Genesis chapter 50. Let's pick up the reading at verse 12. And I want you to see what happens. Joseph's father, by the way, has, uh, his father Jacob has died. And he died after moving uh, to Egypt late in life to survive a famine. The funeral is over. And again, let's pick up the reading at verse 12. So Jacob's sons did as he had commanded them. They carried him to the land of Canaan. Buried him in the cave in the field of Machpelah near Manre, which Abraham had bought along with the field as a burial place from Ephron the Hittite. After burying his father, Joseph returned to Egypt together with his brothers and all the others who had gone with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs that we did to him? 
So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you were to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now, please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. And when their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and they threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Those of you who have been with us throughout this series, uh, either in person or by the miracle of technology listening to our podcast or our app, Uh, you know that no one would have predicted this outcome for the family, that all of this family would be reconciled together. It's interesting that the brothers are so afraid that they send Joseph this message that basically basically the, the, the message amounts to dad said to be nice to us. It's hard to believe, isn't it, that someone could forgive you of the kind of atrocious behavior that these guys committed against Joseph and mean it. Hard to to believe someone could forgive you of all of that and mean it, isn't it? Which made Joseph weep. Why? Why why did he weep? Why did that make him weep? The reason is is he he knows that he's already forgiven his brothers, but they they don't trust him. And so Joseph, to reassure his brothers, says and does three things in verses 19 through 21 specifically that put the finishing touches on the family's reconciliation. And these are three things that make peace possible in marriages and in families and in friendships where betrayal has occurred. It makes peace possible in churches. Man, that's a place where peace rarely exists in the context of the local church. It makes peace possible even in the workplace. And these three things that Joseph does... um, They can even heal relationships between genders. They can heal relationships between ethnicities. And they can heal relationships between socioeconomic groups. And they can heal relationships between management and labor. And they can heal relationships between Westsiders and Eastsiders. In other words, they can do anything if you do these three things. These three things demonstrate a heart that has been transformed by the grace of God. I mentioned last week a commentary uh, on the book of Genesis written by a man by the name of Derek Kidner. And I want you to uh, listen to what Kidner has to say uh, about these three verses. Listen listen to this. He says, excuse me, let me go back here. He says, I can't seem to get that to stop. There we go. He says, each sentence of Joseph's threefold reply is a pinnacle of Old Testament and, by the way, New Testament faith. To leave all the writing of one's wrongs to God, to see his providence in man's malice, and to repay evil not only with forgiveness, but also with practical affection, are attitudes which anticipate Christ. Now what I want to do this morning is I want to use those three things that Kidner mentions as the structure of the rest of this talk, and I want to apply it to our lives so that we can be people who can foster peace and reconciliation in relationships. And I want to just, want to just start with this. Leave all the writings 
of your wrongs to God. Look at what Joseph says in verse 19. He says, he asks this question. He says, am I in the place of God? What he says when he asks that question, am I in the place of God? That's, it's really very frightening if you think about it, what he's saying. He's saying that when you hold a grudge and when you take vengeance on someone who has hurt you in some way, you are putting yourself in the place of God. Which, by the way, mimics someone else who tried to put himself in the place of God. Anybody know who that is? That's right, Satan. And I don't know if you remember what happened to Satan when he tried to put himself in the place of God. He was cast out of heaven. It's a serious thing. Now, I'm not saying that you will lose your salvation. I'm not saying that you will be cast out of eternal life if you were to take revenge on someone. I'm not saying that. If you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, nothing can change that. But I am saying it's a very serious thing to try to put yourself in the place of God. Yet, isn't it true that when someone hurts you, isn't it true that that is your very first instinct to hurt back? An eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, you know, all of that. Isn't it true? I mean, like, that's your first instinct. I want to hurt them. And social media today and technology makes it possible to... uh, really bring all of your wrath and all of your vengeance down upon uh, someone who's hurt you. I read the other day a story, true story, about a guy in Dallas who was upset that his uh, girlfriend broke up with him. Turns out that during their entire relationship, he had been secretly videotaping their sexual encounters with one another. And so, to get even with his girlfriend for breaking up with him, He hacked into her computer, and he sent all of her contacts, including her parents, videos of their sexual encounters. Do you know that there's a name for this, and it's become a trend? I don't know if you are aware of this, but there's a name for this, and the name is revenge porn. Have you heard of that? It's very common. This is the natural desire of the human heart to get revenge, which is why peace and reconciliation is so impossible for the human race because it's our natural instinct. We want to get revenge, don't we? But when a person encounters the grace of God, Part of growing spiritually means that we have to begin to, well, look, the third word on each of those banners over there, it's the word unlearn. We have to begin to unlearn those natural human instincts and to leave the writings of our wrongs, of the wrongs that have been done to us, to God. God says that he and he alone is responsible for the writing of wrong. Romans chapter 12, verse 19, he says, It is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Now why? Why does, why does he say that? Well, two reasons. One is that he's the only one with the knowledge of how best to deal with someone who has hurt you. You think you know what the best way is to deal with someone, don't you? Like if somebody hurts you, don't you think you know what's best? Like, I think I know what's best. And you know what you would like to see happen. But you don't really know how best to deal with that person. You don't know what's happened in their life that caused them to act in the manner that they acted to do to you what they did. 
You don't know what's best for them. God is after their good. God is after the very best for them. He knows better than you do how to handle that person and what, how best to respond to what they did to you. He knows best. You don't. And if it's left up to you, if it's left in your hands, tell me if I'm not right on this, you will undoubtedly exact greater revenge on them. You will escalate the revenge, escalate the damage and the harm. You will escalate that over what they did to you. Am I not right about that? I mean, anybody who knows themselves very well knows that you will escalate whatever was done to them. So God says, I'm the only one who can, I'm the only one who can avenge wrong. Because I'm the only one with knowledge of how best to deal with people. And then there's another reason that he says that he's the only one who should avenge wrong. And the reason is, that reason is that he's the only one who can deal with another person's wrong without becoming evil himself. You know, because if you do it, when someone does wrong to you, when they really do evil to you, you are in a very precarious situation where you're standing, it's like you're standing on the edge of a knife. Because if you don't forgive, and if you don't leave the righting of wrong to God, you allow their evil to come into you. You start to get hard. You start to get cold. You no longer, uh, the longer you don't forgive, the more you nurse your grudge, and you become self-pitying, and you become self-absorbed, and you become self-centered. See, you're taking their evil, and you're, you're, You're letting it come into you. And if you try to beat the evildoer at his or her own game, you lose. Because by repaying evil with evil, you become evil. Listen to this. The fastest way to become like Satan is to try to be God. And the fastest way to become like God is to refuse to be God. Let me say that for you one more time. The fastest way to become like Satan is to try to be God. And the fastest way to become like God is to refuse to be God. One of the marks of people whose hearts have been changed by grace and people who are able, unique people, people who've been touched by grace, who are able to live in peace, and these people are few and far between in the world, It's the willingness to let God right the wrongs that have been done to him. Which means unlearning and surrendering that instinct that you have to get revenge. And as hard as it is to surrender that instinct, I will tell you this. It leads to so much more relational peace in your world than taking things into your own hands. It always does. Okay, second, second thing that Kidner was saying in his commentary, and I want to show you. See his providence, see God's providence in man's malice. Did you notice what Joseph said? He said, he said to these guys this very interesting sentence. He says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it uh, for good. And I know we've hit that issue pretty hard throughout the series, so I don't have to say a lot about this, about seeing God's providence and man's malice. But I do want to make the point that there is a stunning internal peace that comes from realizing that nothing that happens to you happens outside of God's providence. Nothing. 
No harm, no wrong that someone does to you happens outside of God's providence in your life. I don't know if you noticed it or not, but Joseph holds what at first appears to be two uh, competing perspectives on life. He holds these in perfect tension. And I want to just pay attention. I want, you, I, want to, I want you to pay attention to what he says. There's two phrases in here. One is he says, he says, you meant to harm me. Other translations say that uh, you meant it for evil. I have met with and worked with, I have met and worked with, and I'll bet some of you have met people like this and worked with, and maybe you've lived with people like this, who tend to be Pollyannas. Many of whom uh, like to spiritualize their unrealistic optimism about life by calling it faith. Don't get me wrong. I, I think it's great to have a positive outlook on life. I really do. But Pollyannas are hard to live with and work with because they tend to lack the courage to see the very real troubles in life. In fact, they tend to look at troubles in life as anomalies. Joseph, you will notice, is no Pollyanna. He says it very straightforwardly. He says, you meant what you did to harm me. You meant it for evil. That's what he said. You meant it for evil. Joseph would be the kind of person that would tell you straight up, life is hard. It can be terrible. My life, he would say, was hard. My life was filled with pain. There is very real evil in the world, and life is ordinarily filled with evil. Don't expect otherwise. Don't look at evil. Don't look at trouble. Don't look at hardship. Don't look at people hurting you in some way. Don't look at that as an anomaly. Uh, that's, that's the way life is. That's what he would say. But notice the second half of the sentence as well. He says, God meant it for good. I've also met with, or I've also met and worked with, and I'll bet you have too, a lot of pessimists who are always looking for the other shoe to drop. If something good happened in your life, they would say, just wait, life is horrible, something terrible is going to happen, it'll get taken away, the other shoe's going to drop. And these people, I I see some of you smiling because you must live with people like this or know people like this. These people are hard to live with and work with too because just as Pollyannas tend not to have the courage to see the very real troubles of life, pessimists tend not to have the courage to see beyond their troubles and to see the transcendent uh, God who is still good despite circumstances. Now, understand something. The normal human way of looking at life is to say, if life is good, God is good. If things are going well in my life, God is good. And if life is bad, then God is bad. Or maybe he's just not even there. Maybe he doesn't even exist. That's the normal way to look at life. Circumstances good, God must be good. Circumstances bad, God must be bad. That's how the normal human being looks at life. But I want you to understand that there is no internal peace when circumstances dictate a person's view of God's goodness. Because Joseph sees God's transcendent providence at work in his life, he's able to hold both of these realities, 
You meant it for evil. Life is hard. There are bad things that happen. Life is ordinarily filled with pain. And yet, at the same time, he's able to hold this other thing, that God uses it for good. He's able to hold these two perspectives in perfect tension in a way that a normal human being cannot. And as a result of that, not only does he have internal peace about his life, but he can also be an agent of peace with his brothers. Now think about that. Think about that. Joseph, the one who was wronged, is being an agent of peace and reconciliation in his family. He's the one who is bringing his family together. What do you call that? That's called grace. That's what that's called. When the person who is wronged can be an agent of reconciliation, that's called grace. And that's not human. That's supernatural. Now just... Just let me add one caveat here that you've got to make sure you hear, okay? One caveat. Because I know that some of you are thinking this right now. For Joseph to be able to be an agent of reconciliation in his family, there, there were some things that Joseph had to do. Okay? He had to keep these perspectives. But it also required his brothers to accept and acknowledge they're wrong and they're evil, right? I mean, give them credit. They were willing to hear it. We saw that last week. We see it a little bit in this passage this week when they bring the letter from dad that says, you know, hey, we were evil, we were wrong, forgive us, you know? Give them credit. They were willing to hear and acknowledge that they, were, that they did evil, that they were wrong. Joseph couldn't have been an agent of reconciliation without that. So get this. There cannot be real reconciliation with another person who has harmed you without their admission of wrong. There can't be. You can forgive them, absolutely. You can show them grace, absolutely. But there can't be real reconciliation until another person, the person who harmed you, says, I'm, I'm willing to confess, I'm willing to own, I'm willing to acknowledge that what I did to you was wrong. There just can't be reconciliation. You can't force that on anybody. You cannot force that on people. That's something God has to do in their life. But when they come to that place that they're willing to acknowledge their evil, you can be an agent of reconciliation in their in the relationship, because you recognize that God's transcendent providence was working even in their malice toward you. You see? You can be that. That's something supernatural God has done in your life. That capacity is there in your life because the Holy Spirit is living within you. Because the Holy Spirit is living within you, even though you may not feel it, because the Holy Spirit is on the hard drive of your life, you now have the capacity to demonstrate grace even to the people who hurt you so deeply. You can be an agent of peace and reconciliation in your relationships with them. Okay, last thing, last thing. 
And I'm moving through this too, uh, kind of fast because I want to get to what we're going to do in just a few moments. But here's the, here's the third thing that I want you to see. Repay evil not only with forgiveness, but also with practical affection. Did you see what, did you see what Joseph did? Just one last thing that he did to reassure his brothers. He said, so then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. It's a very practical way that he demonstrates his affection as he is an agent of grace and reconciliation. What he's doing, in, in, in a very real sense, what he's doing is that he's loving his enemies. And you say, how? How can he, how can he do that? Because it's, I mean, it's very hard to do that, isn't it? It's very hard to love your enemies. The reason that Joseph can do it is because of the first two points. You see, there's an important order to the chronology here. Because he's willing to leave all the writing of wrongs to God, you know what that makes Joseph? You know where it puts him? It makes him humble. It puts him in a place of humility. And because he sees God's providence in their malice, get this, he's confident. And you say, confident? Well, what in the world is he confident about? Well, he's, here's what he's confident of. No one, not even his brothers, not even his brothers trying to kill him, not even his brothers try, selling him uh, as a slave. No one, he's confident that no one can sink him. Because God is transcended over even all of their actions. No one can sink him. If God is working for your good always, who can sink your life? Did Joseph end up doing what God wanted Joseph to do from the very beginning? Yes, he did exactly what God wanted him to do. No one can sink you. Joseph wasn't on plan B. He was on the plan that God had for him from the very beginning, to be a savior for two nations of people and to keep the messianic hope alive. No one could change that. No one could sink that. That gave him confidence. And you see, if you're going to love your enemies, if you're going to be an agent of peace and reconciliation to your enemies, you have to have two things. One is a terrific humility, and the other is a terrific confidence. The humility to know that you are no better than the person who hurt you. You're no better than your enemy. And you know that. If if, If you're honest, you know that you have wronged other people too. Just as bad, and perhaps even worse, than the person who wronged you. If you're honest with yourself. If you have any sense of self-awareness, you know that you have hurt someone worse. And if you haven't yet, I promise you, you will. You have to have that that humility to know that, that you're no better than them. And at the same time, you have to have the confidence to know that God loves you just as Joseph knew that God loved him, not on the basis of what Joseph deserved. Remember, Joseph was a part of the family's trouble. Because of his arrogance, because of his preening, Joseph's brothers hated him. He had this superiority complex. He was narcissistic. And yet God loved him. God loved him because, why? Because Joseph was worth it? No, God loved him because God is fundamentally gracious. That's his character. 
And only when you understand that you've been saved on the basis of unmerited, unearned favor and not on the basis of your goodness can you be humble enough to love your enemies and confident enough to love your enemies. You ever think about that? In all of this, Joseph images a greater Joseph who would come one day whose name was Jesus, who himself was betrayed by his brothers, but on the cross recognized that it was his father working through it all for good. You remember what Jesus said on the cross? Do you remember what he cried out on the cross? He didn't cry out, um, why are they doing this to me? He didn't cry that out. He cried out these words, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus recognized that it was his father who was working through all of the betrayal by his Jewish brothers and sisters and by the very people the Romans, the Gentiles, by the very people that he had created. Jesus saw that it was his transcendent father who was working through all of that and as a result became the ultimate example of good coming out of evil. And you see, what I hope that you get from this series that we've been doing for the last eight weeks on Joseph is that the cross will make you more humble than Joseph. Because you see, in a way that Joseph didn't, how wicked you are. Joseph didn't realize that God would actually have to die to save him. On the other hand, the cross can make you more confident even than Joseph. Because when you see what Jesus Christ was willing to do for you, Joseph never got to see that. He never got to see the cross. When you see what Jesus Christ was willing to do for you, how much more assurance do you need that God means everything for your good? More humility than Joseph, more confidence than Joseph is possible for you and for me because of the cross of Jesus Christ which is why we have this saying at this church that the cross changes everything. Even how you treat your enemies. And I would suggest to you that it could even change, the cross could even change this city if followers of Christ in this city became agents of peace and agents of reconciliation through the cross of Jesus Christ. Is there anything, is there anything, is there anyone whom we could not love, demonstrate grace to, and be reconciled, even if they're the people who hurt us? Is there anything we couldn't reconcile once we understand 
what Jesus did for us on the cross. I want to ask you to bow your heads uh, with me. The group of people uh, are, would be very happy to pray for you. Um, in just a moment, the band is going to come up and they're going to sing a song. And during that song, if you have something that you would like for them to pray for you about, maybe you just need prayer to be able to love someone, to forgive someone, maybe to be an agent of reconciliation. Uh, they're going to get up now and they're going to go to uh, uh, some tables around the room over there on the left side of the room and the right side of the room. And um, if you'd like for them to pray for you during the last song, feel free to just go and ask them to pray for you. And they'd be more than happy to do that. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus Christ, um, we are humbled by the cross, certainly humbled by the, recogni- by the recognition that we are every one of us more desperately wicked than we ever dared believe. And yet we are given unbelievable confidence by the cross that we are more loved than we would ever dare believe. Lord Jesus Christ, I know that there are people in the room right now who have relationships that are broken. I pray, Lord, that you would give them this morning through this word, through the cross of Christ, give them a willingness to be an agent of reconciliation, to go at least as far as they can go, to forgive. And whether the other person recognizes they're wrong or not, they can still forgive. But Lord, if the other person or other people do recognize they're wrong, then I pray that you would cause every one of us in the room to be an agent of reconciliation, to seek peace, to not repay evil with evil, but to repay it with good. And Lord, I pray that we would do this not for our own glory, but for yours. And that we would do it through the cross of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.